Welcome to the March 30th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn how HLAE-restricted immune responses help control Epstein-Barr virus infection. Discuss the activity of NRX0492 in chronic lymphoblastic leukemia. And learn more about the efficacy of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in the treatment of bone marrow failure associated with Gosal hematodiaphyseal dysplasia. We first examine data in the blood article entitled HLAE-restricted immune responses are crucial for the control of EBV infections and the prevention of PTLD by Hannes Weizen from the Medical University of Vienna in Vienna, Austria, and colleagues. Over 90% of adults worldwide have been infected with Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. Most patients will be asymptomatic, but between 13 and 22% develop symptomatic infectious mononucleosis. Why only a fraction of patients develop symptoms remains unclear. After primary infection, the virus remains dormant in B cells, with a propensity for sporadic reactivation and a causal relationship with several types of hematologic and solid organ malignancies. This is especially true in patients post-solid organ or hematopoietic stem cell transplants who may develop post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorders, or PTLDs, and poor survival. Studies to date have established that potent cytotoxic CD8-positive T and natural killer cell responses are involved in EBV-specific immune responses. Furthermore, a small subset of CD8-positive T cells binds to HLA class 1 histocompatibility antigen alpha chain E, or HLAE, via the alpha-beta T cell receptor. HLAE is a minimally polymorphic non-classical HLA class 1 molecule that is essentially restricted to only two alleles, HLAE0101 and HLAE0103, which differ by a single amino acid. HLAE has a role in both the innate and adaptive immune responses, and recent evidence suggests that it may be involved in the pathogenesis of EBV-related diseases. Notably, Studies have demonstrated that HLAE expression is retained in EBV-positive PTLD and EVB-positive AIDS-related lymphomas. During EBV infection, a restricted set of distinct EBV-encoded BZLF1 or LMP1-derived peptides are presented by HLAE, causing the expansion of NKG2A-positive natural killer cells and secretion of pro-inflammatory cytokines. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that EBV-specific HLAE-restricted CD8-positive T and HLAE-mediated NKG2A-positive cell responses play an important part in the control of EBV infection and prevention of EBV-associated diseases. They used a series of genetic association approaches and functional immune cell assays using CD8-positive T and natural killer cells to test their hypothesis. The study included 1,404 individuals. 578 were diagnosed with infectious mononucleosis. 206 were EBV seropositive but never diagnosed with mononucleosis. 
28 had symptomatic EBV reactivation, and 180 were transplant recipients with symptomatic EBV reactivation. 36 of these 180 had EBV-positive PTLD. In addition, 412 healthy controls were included in the study. The HLAE, LMP1, and BZLF1 genotyping, as well as functional immunological assays, were performed according to established procedures. Study findings revealed that asymptomatic EBV seropositive individuals had a significantly higher frequency of the HLAE 0103-0103 genotype and a lower frequency of the HLAE 0101 allele compared to the controls, with an odds ratio of 2.9. Conversely, patients with infectious mononucleosis had a significantly higher frequency of the HLAE 0101-0101 genotype compared to the overall population with an odds ratio of 6.4 in adults and 5.9 in pediatric cases. The HLAE-0103 occurred rarely in both adults and children with mononucleosis. Therefore, the authors concluded that the high-expressing HLAE-0103-0103 variant may be a protective factor against symptomatic mononucleosis. This protective effect was attributed to the induction of potent Epstein-Barr virus BZLF1-specific HLAE-restricted CD8-positive T-cell responses, which prevent in vitro viral dissemination. The study further found that the risk of symptomatic EBV reactivations in immunocompetent individuals and immunocompromised transplant recipients is dependent on variations in the NKG2A, LMP1, HLAE signaling pathway, and EBV strains. Namely, infection with EBV strains encoding for the GDPHL-PTL or GGDPPL-PTL-LMP1 peptide variants, which are presented by HLAE, induced strong inhibitory NKG2A-positive natural killer and CD8-positive T-cell responses. Infection with EBV strains encoding for both of these peptides was highly associated with symptomatic EBV reactivations, while patients who progressed to EBV-positive PTLD also expressed HLAE-0103-0103 alleles. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that HLAE-restricted immune responses and the HLAE-LMP1-NKG2A axis are novel predictive markers for EBV-positive PTLD in transplant recipients and should be considered in future EBV vaccine design. In an accompanying commentary, Maher Gandhi, from the University of Queensland in Queensland, Australia, notes that the work of Vietzin and collaborators shows that the development of infectious mononucleosis depends on the host HLAE allele type and HLAE-restricted CD8-positive T-cell responses. The authors also demonstrate that the risk of progressing to PTLD in transplant patients depends on specific variations in EBV strains and the host genome that impact the HLAE-LMP1-NKG2A axis. Gandhi commends the authors not only for the large scale of their study, which included 1,404 participants, but also for providing an immune mechanistic basis to back up the observed genetic associations.
However, he also notes that additional research is needed to determine if similar mechanisms that impact viral dissemination may apply to EBV-related malignancies and diseases like multiple sclerosis. A deeper understanding of the role of the viral and host-related factors in susceptibility to EBV-related disease will be important for the development of preventative vaccines and immunotherapies for EBV. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled NRX0492 degrades wild-type and C481 mutant BTK and demonstrates in vivo activity in CLL patient-derived xenografts by Dei Zhang from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. Bruton tyrosine kinase, or BTK, is an essential protein in B-cell receptor signaling that drives disease progression in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Thus, BTK inhibitors have become the treatment of choice for patients with CLL and other types of B-cell malignancies. Ibrutinib is a first-in-class covalent BTK inhibitor that binds to the C481 cysteine residue in the active site of BTK. In studies to date, ibrutinib has shown high rates of response across the different genetic and clinical risk groups of CLL patients. Patients with CLL who progress on ibrutinib therapy commonly harbor mutations that substitute the C481 residue with a different amino acid, thereby preventing the covalent binding of ibrutinib. Thus, approaches that employ non-covalent BTK inhibitors in C481 mutant BTK have been explored in recent clinical studies. Among these, pirtobrutinib showed promising activity, with 67% of patients resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors responding to this drug. Mutant BTK can also be targeted with small molecule BTK degraders that use a non-covalent BTK inhibitor moiety as a hook linked to a harness, which recruits the E3 ligase adapter, cerebron. Cerebron, in turn, catalyzes ubiquitylation and proteasomal degradation of BTK. To date, several targeted BTK protein degraders have been developed using NX2127, NX5948, and NRX0492. In the current study, the authors examined the activity of a targeted BTK degrader, NRX0492, against primary CLL cells in vitro and in patient-derived xenografts. The mechanism of action of NRX0492-mediated BTK degradation was studied in TMD8 cell lines engineered to express BTKC481S. Probe binding was assessed using the BTK fluorescence resonance energy transfer competition assay. Peripheral blood mononuclear cells used were obtained from patients with CLL enrolled in two studies. Experiments with a patient-derived xenograft model in mice were conducted by administering a single dose of 30 mg per kilogram NRX0492 by oral gavage on day one, followed by continuous dosing at a concentration of 0.2 mg per milliliter. Cellular degradation and proteomic assays, flow cytometry, RNA sequencing, and chemokine measurements were performed according to established protocols. A series of experiments in TMD8 cells revealed that NRX0492 selectively catalyzes ubiquitylation and proteosomal degradation of BTK, 
while minimally affecting degradation of the related kinase, ITK. In primary CLL cells, NRX0492 induced rapid and sustained degradation of both wild-type and C481 mutant BTK at a 50% degradation concentration of 0.2 nanomolar or less and a 90% degradation concentration of 0.5 nanomolar or less, respectively. Moreover, NRX0492 maintained sustained degradation activity for at least 24 hours after washout. Interestingly, the NRX0492 degradation activity was similar in both high-risk CLL with deletion 17P as well as in standard-risk CLL with deletion 13Q only. An in vitro experiment against treatment-naive CLL samples revealed that the ability of NRX0492 to inhibit BCR-mediated signaling, transcriptional programs, and chemokine secretion was comparable to that of ibrutinib. In patient-derived xenografts, orally administered NRX0492 induced BTK degradation and inhibited the activation and proliferation of CLL cells in both the blood and spleen. Moreover, NRX0492 remained effective against primary C481S mutant CLL cells collected from a patient who progressed on ibrutinib. The authors concluded that NRX0492's high oral bioavailability, BTK degradation efficacy at sub-nanomolar concentrations, and sustained pharmacodynamic effects make this agent uniquely suitable as a strategy to overcome BTK inhibitor resistance. Two clinical studies testing this approach are ongoing. In an accompanying commentary, Anna Portalinha from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York notes that Zhang and collaborators successfully demonstrate that NRX0492 degrades wild-type and C481 mutant BTK resulting in significant single-agent activity against CLL patient-derived xenografts in vivo. Their findings also point to NRX0492's advantages in target occupancy that overcome ibrutinib resistance related to the C481 mutation and its potential to retain activity against BTK forms that are resistant to non-covalent inhibitors. A surprising finding of the study was that the NRX0492 degrader was able to bind to BTK proteins with the T474I gatekeeper mutation. Portalinha notes that this is unexpected because a non-covalent inhibitor is used as the hook and the T474 residue impairs access to the BTK binding pocket. The potential therapeutic effect of this finding was not fully explored in the current study. Portalinha further notes that the key difference between small molecule BTK degraders and non-covalent BTK inhibitors lies in the requirement for prolonged and near-complete target occupancy for regular kinase inhibitors. In contrast, the degraders do not need to occupy BTK molecules for a prolonged time to sustain efficacy. This leads to a different pharmacodynamic profile of the drug and prolonged target inhibition. She concludes that future clinical studies will be needed to determine if BTK degraders have improved clinical activity and fewer side effects compared to regular kinase inhibitors. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled 
non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as a targeted therapy for bone marrow failure in Gosal hematodiaphyseal dysplasia by Timothy Brown from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and colleagues. Gosal hematodiaphyseal dysplasia, also known as Gosal syndrome, is a rare autosomal recessive hematologic disease caused by inherited loss of function mutations in thromboxane A synthase 1, or TBXAS1. To date, fewer than 40 cases of Gosal syndrome have been reported worldwide, mostly in Middle Eastern, North African, and South Asian individuals. Most recently, Novel TBXAS1 mutations were reported in a Caucasian family in North America. Gosal syndrome is characterized by corticosteroid-sensitive normocytic anemia, often requiring transfusion support and bony changes with cortical thickening of diaphysis. The diagnosis is, in some cases, accompanied by bone marrow hypocellularity and myelofibrosis, or decreased erythroid precursors. The pathological mechanism underlying Gosal syndrome is poorly understood. It is hypothesized that in the absence of thromboxane activity, more prostaglandin H2 is available for synthesis of other prostaglandins, leading to the accumulation of pro-inflammatory prostaglandin and leukotriene metabolites that cause direct injury to the bone marrow and also remodeling of the cortices. The recommended treatment for Gosal syndrome consists of repeated courses of corticosteroids to maintain adequate hemoglobin levels. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, could ameliorate the effects of TBXAS1 loss and improve hematologic function by reducing prostaglandin formation. To test this hypothesis, they treated two patients with Gosal syndrome with either ibuprofen or aspirin at doses that inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2. Mass spectrometry analysis was performed on urinary eicosanoid metabolites to assess the systemic eicosanoid formation in vivo at three different time points. At baseline, after three months of NSAID treatment, after withholding NSAID for 14 days, and after three weeks of low-dose NSAID. Whole exome sequencing of peripheral blood DNA was performed per established protocols. Patient 1 was a 30-year-old Pakistani male who presented with chronic fatigue, joint stiffness, and diarrhea, and previously suffered from lifelong normocytic anemia and thrombocytopenia. The patient received approximately 50 red blood cell transfusions before the age of 7. Laboratory results revealed normocytic anemia, a platelet count between 100 and 120,000 per microliter, and intermittent mild neutropenia. ESR and CRP were persistently elevated. Bone marrow biopsies showed reduced hematopoietic elements, thickened trabeculae, and disorganized osteocytes. Skeletal imaging findings were consistent with Gosal syndrome, and whole exome sequencing identified a likely pathogenic homozygous PR413Q missense substitution in TBXAS1. Upon treatment with 325 mg per day of aspirin, the patient's hematologic and inflammatory parameters improved. Fatigue and joint stiffness improved after two months. When aspirin was stopped for 14 days, the symptoms returned, coupled with a rise in CRP. An intermediate aspirin dose of 162 mg per day normalized inflammatory markers and improved fatigue and joint stiffness with sustained effects 16 months after treatment initiation. 
Patient 2 was a previously healthy three-year-old girl of Filipino descent. She presented with persistent normocytic anemia and thrombocytopenia after the initial diagnosis of bacterial pneumonia had resolved. The patient's erythrocyte sedimentation rate was significantly elevated. Her bone marrow was profoundly hypocellular, with fatty deposits and areas of fibrotic stroma. Bone density was significantly increased. Whole exome sequencing identified a novel homozygous, likely pathogenic, PR287-TBXAS1 variant. Due to her young age, she was started on 30 mg per kilogram per day of ibuprofen and later reduced to a dose of 10 mg per kilogram per day. She experienced a rapid improvement in hemoglobin, platelet count, and ESR within one month of starting treatment, with sustained effects 19 months after treatment initiation. Study authors concluded that their findings demonstrate for the first time that augmented eicosanoid biosynthesis in patients with Gosal syndrome is responsive to treatment with aspirin and ibuprofen. Furthermore, they suggest that NSAIDs, as opposed to corticosteroids, should be the first-line treatment for patients with this syndrome due to their more favorable safety profile. In an accompanying commentary, Senthil Sukumar and Gadir Sasa from the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas note that the report by Brown and collaborators demonstrates for the first time that downstream COX and lipoxygenase products are aberrantly amplified in patients with Gosal syndrome and that treatment with NSAIDs effectively reduces the production of both. Furthermore, eicosanoid suppression by NSAIDs occurred in a dose-dependent manner. These findings provide compelling evidence for a departure from the current standard of care in favor of intermediate to high-dose NSAID therapy as first-line treatment for patients with Gosal syndrome. Compared to corticosteroids, NSAIDs offer a targeted treatment approach with a more acceptable safety profile. Sukumar and Sasa go on to suggest that a reasonable approach in adults could start with a high dose of aspirin at 325 milligrams until a complete response is achieved, with subsequent titration to the lowest dose needed to maintain the clinical response. In broader terms, the current report furthers the understanding of hematopoietic suppression that takes place in inflammatory conditions. It also outlines how benign, widely available therapeutic agents can be repurposed to improve the standard of care in an ultra-rare disease. Future studies should focus on understanding how eicosanoids affect hematopoiesis, which cells are affected the most, and whether inhibition of a single eicosanoid may have therapeutic effects. In addition, it would be of interest to investigate if eicosanoids are implicated in other bone marrow failure states associated with inflammation, such as Fanconi anemia. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.